know, we've lost, I mean, we've lost cats before because it's a farm mm-hmm. and we have coyotes that like come right up into our yard. Yes. So you're going to yeah. lose cats and it's sad totally. and the girls cry and everything, but just like we've had Porter for 13 years, you know, and I just have, yeah. Yeah. I don't know, like I was telling you earlier today, like just like walk, you know, teaching him to go for walks with me off of a leash down the road mm-hmm. and stay in the ditch and, you know, just all these little, mm-hmm. I don't know. I don't know. Just really sad. A lot of memories. And he's my first been dog. with you longer he's, than your kids. Yeah. Yeah. I told um, my oldest last night when she was going to bed, I was like, I remember bringing you home from the hospital and having you in your little pumpkin seat and bringing you into the like kitchen area. And we had Porter come in the house and just like put her down like on the floor where he could see her and he's like sniffing her like oh mm-hmm. my gosh what's this thing and he literally went into a de- like a depression after we brought her home like I'm not even joking really yeah and it, I should just say depression realized he wasn't your baby anymore yeah I felt so bad because <laughs> you know we live in the country and it wasn't safe to like take a stroller with a newborn down the road you know at first mm-hmm. anyway until like we got more used to things and so it wasn't like the daily walks he was used to at first you know oh, until yeah. things got back to normal and so i i shouldn't say depression but he was just like you could tell he was like what's happening mm-hmm. like this is yeah, not normal. my life has totally changed <laughs> yeah yeah our dog we used to have a a lab cross rottweiler before we had our kids and the same sort of thing happened when we brought our oldest home, except it wasn't depression so much as anger. (laughs) Like she went from the sweetest dog, like she was our baby and she wasn't like the sweetest dog in all circumstances. Like she was bad with other dogs and stuff, but she was our baby before we had babies. And then we brought the baby home and it became very clear that she didn't want anything to do with him and also really didn't like him. And we didn't feel like the baby was safe with her. So we had to actually give her away (laughs) to a farmer. But then we ended up getting Tucker like a couple years later and he has been the perfect little family dog. Just sounds like your dog is a perfect family dog too. He is. He loves the girls. Like he loves them and they love him. And like my oldest last night, she after I told her that story, she was like, oh, I remember. She's like, when I was really little sitting on his back. And I was like, I don't remember that. Mm-hmm. And I was thinking like she meant like writing. I was like, uh, I don't remember right. that. <laughs> I was like, what were you doing when I wasn't around? But she was like, no, like when he was sitting down, I would just like get up. And I was like, oh, I remember that. He'd be laying down and she would like just sit on him and he would just like lay there, you know, mm-hmm. and – Oh, <laughs> like they so awesome. You know, put sunglasses on him and weird things like that. And he's just like, okay. Oh, <laughs> totally. Yeah. <laughs> I he's love so that. Sweet. Yeah. Yeah. Well, lots of good memories. It's hard, yep. but. It is, but he's lived a yeah. great life and I don't know, been well loved. Yeah. And loved us well. Yeah. And that's the most a dog could ever ask for. That's really all they want. It's really all people want. <laughs> Really? Yeah. (laughs) All right. Um, Shall we just get started? Yep. Let's do it. Okay. 
hello and welcome to the Boom Clap Podcast. We have got another bonus episode for you today. On Monday, we released an episode where I was interviewing Rita about her experience in her hospital since COVID began. And there was just so much to talk about and I was so grateful for the perspectives that she brought, but there was things that we couldn't cover in that time without like going way too long. So we have just a few more things that we wanted to talk about. So we thought we'd turn it into a bonus episode. And the first thing that I want to mention is that we recorded that first episode of me interviewing Rita in April. I'm not sure if it was middle of April or closer to the end of April, but it's been a little while. And as it happens in the world of well, just the world in general. Um, But in the COVID world, things change and things shift. And now we're finding ourselves middle of May. And while her perspective on things hasn't changed and the things that we want to talk about are still the same things that we want to talk about, I feel like the, I don't know, I don't know how to explain it, but I feel like things have changed in not necessarily public perception, but almost like public anxiety and not so much about COVID spreading, but about vaccines and masks and what's it going to look like going forward. Plus right now we're in the middle of India being in a huge crisis in Bangalore and certain places are seeing huge spread of the virus and it's awful and it's, it's hard to watch and it's horrible. But there's just a lot going on with COVID right now that we want to acknowledge. (laughs) So um, first thing I want to talk about with Rita is that um, I think a lot of people might hear a nurse like Rita speaking and think, well, it's great for her to have her opinions, whatever. But has she even seen people dying of COVID? And she has. So I just thought it would be good for Rita to start off with a story of one of her more recent COVID patients that she had filled me in about. So Rita, do you want to just kind of share that story? Yeah. So, I mean, just the other day I was in charge at work and got a call from one of the critical care docs that he had a patient um, upstairs in the other ICU that he wanted to cannulate for ECMO that was sick. And so, um, it happens that there's, you know, some days there's like three or four nurses that can take an ECMO patient scheduled and I would have to switch around the whole unit. And so I just ended up giving the charge pager to another nurse and saying, you know, I'm going to go up and take care of it and we'll figure things out later. Well, um, five hours later, I left the room from with that patient. I was in the room solid for five hours um, approximately. Mm -hmm. Um, But anyway, just I don't want to go into the whole story or say anything too personal, but I will just say um, in general, in the ICU, uh, you see a lot of really sick patients and it's not what you think. Mm -hmm. It's not what you see on TV. It's not somebody laying pristine in a bed. It is messy. It is, Mm -hmm. uh, it's awful. And so just to give you perspective on what this looked like, uh, I get upstairs to um, prepare for, you know, the OR team cannulating the patient, the surgeon cannulating patient, and uh, the patient is blue, like the face of the patient is blue. Um, We get in there and they start, you know, prepping the patient, cannulating, they finally get the flow going and color improves. Uh, We give some blood products, get everybody in there that needs to help transport respiratory therapist 
doctor, uh, perfusionist, myself, um, and another nurse. And actually, the doctor didn't go down with us, but four of us, patient on the elevator, transport downstairs, immediately get in the room. I'm in the room with the perfusionist, can't get blood pressures. We're already on two pressers, um, two IV medications, mm-hmm. turning those up as high as they can go to get a blood pressure. Doc comes down, add two more pressers, have those as high as they can go, um, sticking a patient multiple times to try to get an arterial line because we can't get cuff mm-hmm. pressures and we need an arterial line anyways, but um, it's just like not been possible because we're so clamped down um, from all those pressers and just... Um, giving blood products, bring family to the bedside, um, have family help us make some decisions, uh, those kind of things. So it's just, it's not a pretty situation. And I don't want Mm -hmm. to say this because I think we have, I don't want to say this in a way that makes you more fearful just of this virus. Yes. Um, I want to say this through the lens of telling you this is the ICU. This mm-hmm. is what happens in the ICU. This is not just this patient. I I could lay mm-hmm. out the same scenario for you with flu patients in the past. I could lay out the same scenario for you with somebody who's um, not been able to come off bypass after open heart surgery. Um, this is the mm-hmm. ICU. That's what it looks like in an ICU. And so, yes, I have cared for these very sick patients, but I'm coming at this, trying to come at this from a very logical perspective. Um, Uh And I don't want to say removing my emotions because, yes, there are still emotions that surround this, but maintaining logic with my emotions and basing what I think off of what I am seeing now in my past experiences as well. Yeah. No, that's that's really helpful. Helpful on two levels. I think helpful for people – for people to realize that you're not one of those random hospitals that just hasn't seen COVID patients. It's very much been part of your reality. You have seen it, you have dealt with it. I'm sure you've seen people walk out and I'm sure you've seen many that haven't been able to. So Mm -hmm. it's not like you're sheltered from it. You have seen it. Um, And you had said to me like, and it's not with just with this scenario, but with so many, like, like you said, you've seen it with flu, you've seen it with other things. But you had said, like, I cannot think of anything worse, like, than what you see on a regular basis. Yeah, and I, I mean, it's really, I, yeah. it, it is the worst of the worst. And I think that's yeah. one thing that nurses who are telling the general public all of this stuff right now need to keep in mind mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. we always see the worst of the worst. Like, there's no yes. higher level to, of care than an ICU at a level one trauma center. You know, there's no higher level of care. There's nowhere else to go. So what you see does not – it doesn't get worse than that, you know, as far as like medical things. Yeah. Yeah. And I think what's also important is what you pointed out at the beginning. It's like the ICU and patients being treated in ICU – it is not what you see on TV. It's not bright and pristine and just, you know, people flitting about like it is – it's intense. Um, like you said, there's no higher level of care than what people are getting there. So mm-hmm. I think it's really important for people to remember just the reality of it, you know, at all times, not just during yeah. a certain season. So with a lot of these patients um, that you've seen, you have mentioned before that they're, you know, deconditioned 
a lot of the time, and this is what contributes to their poor results. So let's talk a little bit about early treatment. Yeah, so I think that we covered some of the decondition portion in the previous episode, but yeah, early treatment, we know who the high-risk people are, right? We know the Mm high-risk category, but I think the fact that we have largely not talked about it I think that it's purposefully not been talked about in the media who the most at-risk population is because if you make one group of people most at risk, which is the case, then Mm -hmm. it releases the rest of the people from the grip of fear. And, (laughs) you know, you can't have that if you want everybody to participate in this, right? And so by Mm -hmm. not talking about who is the most at-risk population, we're not identifying those people and we're not, you know, if they get the virus, we're just saying, oh, just stay home. Just like with everybody else. I mean, everybody should be able to get early treatment because, yes, there will be some healthy outliers that do get very sick. But for the most part, we know these are obese, deconditioned, um, diabetic people getting very, very ill, ending Mm -hmm. up in the ICUs. Mm -hmm. And if we were more open to acknowledging that, we would be identifying these people and giving them some sort of early treatment. And there's multiple things we could do. I don't want really want to get into like medical advice or saying what that early treatment is. Yeah. But let me just tell you, there are multiple sources of thing of laying out things that you can do for the inflammatory process. And it's majorly the inflammatory process yes. is being ignored. And just, you know, the same day that you know, that patient scenario was going down. Earlier in the day, we had another ECMO patient and the perfusionist comes out and he's like, man, Rita, he's just like, I don't know what to say. He's like, we're just, everybody we're putting on ECMO is outside the exclusion criteria. So we have a BMI Mm -hmm. exclusion criteria. You know, if your BMI is over a certain amount, we're not, you know, you're not a good candidate Mm -hmm. for this treatment. Um, right. Well, and I shouldn't even say treatment because ECMO is not necessarily a treatment. It's a bridge to like let your body rest and recover um, mm-hmm. while you're while you're healing. So I don't want to misuse the term treatment there, but um, mm-hmm. he's just like man, and he's like it's not even just the ECMO. He's like it's all these COVIDs. They're all obese. You know, they're all deconditioned. And I'm like <laughs> preaching to the choir. I'm like I know. And he was Mm, like, people mm -hmm. don't want to hear it. He's like, people don't want to hear it. But if I don't tell you the truth, I don't love you. And he's like, you don't have to listen to me, but I have to be able to at least tell you the truth. And it's just, I I work one 12-hour shift a week. This perfusionist Mm -hmm. has been with every single ECMO patient, every single one. And I can't imagine how disheartening it is to see this day in and day out and know that we keep doing the same thing over and over and it's not working. Mm -hmm. And there are other things we could be doing early on to help these people and we're just not, you know, that's super frustrating. And so I guess what I'm saying is instead of our health department just calling people once they test positive and being like, oh, who have you been around and contact tracing you and then calling Mm -hmm. you and asking you what your temperature is, which is not helping you in any way. Why hasn't our, quote, health department focused Mm -hmm. on health and helping these people know that you should be – you shouldn't be just sitting around. You need to be up moving. One of the things we're seeing is blood clots of this. You need to be up moving. You need to be 
doing things to decrease the inflammatory process very early on. And there are even things Mm -hmm. that people could be doing preventatively. So that's been a huge Mm -hmm. frustrating factor. Yeah. I mean, when you even were just telling me about the patient you lost recently, I was just thinking like of the frustration that I would feel just having to watch these people come in like with the same scenario over and over again. And when you put it into perspective that, I mean, you do one 12 hour shift a week and there's other people like that perfusionist that are seeing almost every single ECMO patient. I can't imagine the level of frustration and the fact that that frustration is not spilling over into policy and procedure. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like that's a great example with the contact tracers. Like it would be so simple to just, instead of just asking about where you've been and what's your temp to just get, do a little preventative action right there. Like, like the things you say, like get moving, get outside, you know, it's just, it could be simple if we would allow it to be, or even just in the media, you know, we talk so much about staying far apart from people, but what if some of the messaging was talking about what we can do for our health rather than just stay away from people? Yeah, I think even it was, well, it was my hospital, but I think what was in the pack, they were like, we we have like the website for our hospital and they were excited mm. that they were promoting out to people um, and helping our community by giving them a pack mm. with, I think it was a thermometer, like a pulse ox maybe. I can't remember mm. for sure. And then like a mask. Mm. So it had like three or four things in it. Okay. And I'm like, Mm-hmm. None of those things are interventions to help your body. Those are all monitoring tools, you know. Yeah, it's a like <laughs> let's wait and see how safe yeah. you can get before you come in. <laughs> yeah, I'm like why? I, it just it's so sad to me. And I don't it know, just sad, even yeah. at the end of the shift the other day, you know, after that whole scenario, um, I was sitting there charting mm-hmm. in one of the night shift MPs who I've worked with as a nurse before, we're friends, came up and was just kind of asking me. And she was like, well, did, did the patient have their vaccine? And I was like, I don't know. Mm-hmm. They haven't really been charting that anywhere, so I'm not sure. And she was like, well, um, a lot of that community is full of anti-vaxxers. And I was like, well, I'm not getting mine, And you know, <laughs> which ensued into another conversation. And she was like, oh, I'm fine with that. Right. You're she goes, you're young and healthy. She's like, I don't think you should get it. She's like, but, you know, for the obese population, they should be getting it because mm-hmm. they're not healthy. And I was like, mm. okay. I'm like, for one, it doesn't – it has been said that they don't – the shots in general, flu shot, this, anything, doesn't work as well in the obese population in the first place. So one. Mm-hmm. But two, I just found it so sad that this has been a year – and we have so little hope in someone being able to help themselves from a standpoint of health that we just say like, mm-hmm. well, they should get the shot because it's basically – that just makes me feel like it's a hopeless scenario and they should get the shot because that's right. the only way to help their health. Instead of like mm. – you know what I mean? Does that even make sense? Like the yeah. language around it. it. Is, like yeah. They think like we need to promote out this shot to people, but how much time mm-hmm. have we – spent promoting health to these people. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, if people choose to get the vaccine, that's fine. Yeah. However, there should be public health should be about more than vaccines. And I feel like public Mm -hmm. health has really become about vaccines, but it should be about the health of the public 
you know, and I know that's just flipping the words around, but I think that's important because it's been lost somewhere in translation. It's no longer about the health of the public because if it was, there'd be more preventative education, especially when we find ourselves in a crisis. And when I think of India too, like what's going on there is absolutely awful. It just makes my heart sick. But it's also one of the, I think it might even be the country in the world with the highest proportion of diabetics. So it's like, yes, let's send them aid, you know, but what else can, they they need some help getting the diabetes under control as well and things like that in their country Mm -hmm. coming out of this. Or else they're going to be set up really poorly for something like this to ever happen again. And I just, I don't want our response to always be reactive because that is not a good way for anyone to live. And that's not true public health. Yeah, I totally agree. And just yesterday, I think an article came out that uh, the Biden administration is partnering with McDonald's to make cups (sighs) to tell people, you know, about the vaccine and the importance of the vaccine. And it literally said within the article, I can't remember the exact words, but it was something like, now people can learn about how to um, take care of their health while they sit down and eat a meal at McDonald's. And I was like, does anybody yeah. see the oxymoron of this language? You know, like you're learning yeah. about how to help your health while you're eating McDonald's. Like yeah. this. So well, it's not even that we're just not focused on health. We're focused yeah, yeah. on – we're we're like – don't even care about health. It's not that we're not focused. We're just throwing mm-hmm. food out the window as a contributing factor yeah. to any illness. Well, <laughs> I'm just struck by something. And I just think that vaccines, whether they work or not, and a lot of them do, it's a very passive form of healthcare. It's a very passive form of healthcare. Like I think of, for example, I mean, it's passive for the individual receiving it. Obviously, for the people who work behind the scenes developing the vaccines, it's not passive. But for, say, for me as an individual, for example, I take a vaccine. That is a very passive form of healthcare. And it makes me think of like a physiotherapist, maybe doing range of motion on a patient. So there's passive range of motion and there's active range of motion. So passive range of motion is when the the PT or the PT assistant is performing the range of motion by literally grabbing the person's arm or whatever part of their body it is and moving it for them. Right. That's extremely passive. Sometimes that's necessary, but not always. And then there's active range of motion where the patient is actually moving their body themselves. And I think of vaccines as a very passive move for your healthcare. You can choose to do that, absolutely, but recognize that it's passive and you can't always be passive. Sometimes you need to be an active participant. Not sometimes, always. You always need to be an active participant in your healthcare. So that's fine. If you want to be passive, that's fine, but also be active. That's a great example, the passive versus I, <laughs> passive range I feel of like I said passive and active a lot yeah. just then, but anyway. <laughs> Perfect example, Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, let's talk about something else here. Let's talk about the flu testing. We have seen not a lot of flu cases reported. Why is that, Rita? Because we weren't testing for it. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. So (laughs) I don't know. Honestly, maybe the flu was lower this year. I don't know for sure, Mm -hmm. but 
That does happen. Yeah. Yeah. I do know that we were not testing for it. There was a point where we tested every single patient that walked through the ED for COVID. Mm-hmm. Every single mm-hmm. one. So when hmm. you're looking for something actively, like looking for something hard, you're going to find it more, right? right. And mm-hmm. when you're not looking for something, you're not going to find it. And uh, mm-hmm. one of my coworkers had uh, been the stat nurse one day. And I think, I can't remember the numbers. This was a long time ago. This was like November, December, somewhere in there, um, had floated mm-hmm. out to the COVID, like the floor COVID unit, not the ICU, but like the floor COVID unit when they were stat nurse and was helping with some patients. So he had just looked through the charts and I think it was 23 patients that were positive for COVID. And he looked to see if they had an RPP, like Mm -hmm. a respiratory pathogens panel that tested for everything. And only two Mm -hmm. of the patients did out of, it was either 23 or 28. I can't remember, but only two did. Interesting. And one yeah. of the two had a co-infection with influenza, but right. the other 20-some had no testing for the flu. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. I just found that interesting, and I brought it to my director's attention, the person above my manager, at one point this fall, and he was mm-hmm. just like, well, I mean, we are testing for it. And I'm like, no, we're not. And I gave him that example, and he's like, well, it wouldn't really matter anyway. I mean, it's a virus, so you treat it the same way. I'm like, <laughs> what? I just like, I just laughed. I'm like, I don't even know yeah. what to say right now. So yeah, the main thing is we weren't looking for it. Yeah. And you know what it made me think of? Like you had said, when you're actively looking for something, you will find it. It makes me think of the recent change the CDC made in mm-hmm. monitoring um, COVID in people who have received the vaccine. So let's talk about how they monitor COVID cases in general and people that have not been vaccinated. So they keep track of all cases, regardless of how sick the person is, whether they're just totally fine or in the hospital or deceased, they keep track of absolutely everything. And they were doing that for um, individuals who had been vaccinated against COVID as well. They had been keeping track of positive COVID cases in vaccinated individuals, whether they were totally fine, hospitalized, or deceased. Recently, though, they've made a change that they're only keeping track of vaccinated COVID patients who are either Mm -hmm. sick in hospital with COVID or deceased from COVID. They're not keeping track of all the other ones because they say it will help them, you know, focus on the most clinically important cases. However, when it comes to unvaccinated COVID patients, they are still keeping track and numbering every single case. So I just wonder, you know, they're, they're looking for something and they're not looking for something. And I just find that really interesting. And I wish it was across the board. I don't care necessarily if they don't keep track of vaccinated patients who have COVID that aren't super sick, but then maybe they should stop counting those cases in the general unvaccinated population as well. Yeah. This is the first time in history of any kind of illness that I've been a part of as a nurse in the 15 years that we've kept track of mm-hmm. asymptomatic people as cases and just tried to right. look for it in the community with people who aren't even requesting mm-hmm. a test. We're just mm-hmm. making people test. Yeah. And so, yeah. yeah, this is a huge problem. And another um, thing I want to point out with that is they also said 
in the patients that were hospitalized, they had a chart of patients who were vaccinated and hospitalized who had COVID. Mm. They were quick to identify and point out that there was a percentage, I think it was like 20% or something, that Mm. were hospitalized who had COVID but weren't there because they were sick with COVID. They were sick with something else but also had COVID. They were hospitalized with something Mm. else, also had COVID. And so I found that very interesting because – Throughout this whole process, anybody who has died in a hospital with COVID, regardless of it being a contributing factor mm-hmm. to their death, was labeled as a COVID death. And so yes, it's yeah. very interesting that now they are all of a mm-hmm. sudden wanting to make sure they are clear that, hey, this patient's hospitalized. COVID they didn't have contribute. COVID, <laughs> but yeah, COVID isn't why they're yeah. hospitalized. That's very important. Yeah. And so I think. I don't know. I today I had talked a little bit about on social media the CDC again because people don't really understand how it's funded in America. The CDC is funded mm-hmm. by taxpayers and by uh, corporations and um, philanthropies. I will say that in quotes. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, and so I think it's really important to understand this piece of what the CDC is doing to me. Maybe I'm wrong, but to me, it appears that the CDC is funded by the um, corporations that do make this vaccine. And so when you have them funded by these corporations, then they push out that we should all take this vaccine. Then they change the rules for how they're monitoring its effectiveness. Mm -hmm. It appears mm-hmm. to me that that's a tactic to skew the data to make it more marketable. Yeah. And people might make the argument, oh, well, they're doing that because, you know, they just really do want to focus on what's most clinically important. But then the same would be for the unvaccinated population. Yes. And then someone might counter again, well, oh, but it's because of community spread and we want to keep the community spread, you know, under control. However, those vaccinated people that have COVID could still spread it too, regardless mm-hmm. of whether they're not in the hospital. So the whole argument falls apart. Yeah. Or um, they don't. Don't get you me do wrong. You do or you don't. Asymptomatic people do or exactly. they don't, regardless of yeah. vaccination status. Exactly. Make your choice. Yeah. Yeah. And I say make your choice. I say make your informed choice. Yes. You know, CDC. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, anyway, we were going to talk about relabeling deaths and you touched on that briefly. Um, so I don't know that we need to get into it in detail, but basically beginning of the, well, the, the largest chunk of the pandemic. And still, I would say, you know, people could be in hospital with end-stage cancer or ALS or any variety, like COPD, and, you know, near the end of their life anyway. And if they die with COVID as well, it would be labeled a COVID death. So you've seen a lot of that, I assume. Yeah. And additionally, I I mean, the biggest thing I want to address is I was getting a lot of people at the beginning of this when that was a big thing that we talked about, that everybody was talking about the relabeling Mm -hmm. people, you know, so we would have, I just want to give a really specific example because I think that this will help clear the mud for people. Um, Mm -hmm. Because to me, it's not a wrong or right situation. It's a inconsistency Mm -hmm. situation. It's like this may, this could be right or it could be wrong, but as long as we're doing it consistently, we can compare. But if we're not doing it consistently, we can't compare. So Mm -hmm. let's just take flu, for example. I have a patient in the hospital, been intubated for a few weeks on ECMO, whatever, um, Mm -hmm. has the flu. 
gets decannulated, they're over their flu illness. They're not there because mm-hmm. of the flu anymore. They were yes. in the hospital. They never would have been in the hospital if it wasn't for the flu. They're there because of the flu. Patient is better. They're in a floor room. They uh, code. They find that the patient had a PE, passes away. Okay, mm-hmm. that patient would mm-hmm. not be labeled a flu death traditionally in the past. Mm-hmm. It would be labeled mm-hmm. as some kind of mm-hmm. respiratory arrest, um, pulmonary mm-hmm. embolism, whatever. It wouldn't be labeled a flu death, even though right. the patient would have never been in the hospital if it weren't for the flu. But with COVID, yeah. same scenario, the patient's labeled a COVID death because they were originally there for COVID. And so I yeah. I was getting a lot of people saying, well, but the patient would have never been there if it weren't for COVID. Okay, there were patients that were in the hospital for something other than COVID, but had incidental finding of COVID. They're labeled labeled a COVID death. But then we also had patients like I described with there because of this virus. But in the past, if it were something else like flu, would not have been labeled labeled COVID, but now mm-hmm. are. And so I'm not saying it's wrong that they're labeled a COVID death because really that is a contributing factor. But with the flu, Mm -hmm. it wasn't the same. And so when you want to compare death rates, you can't really compare because we're doing everything differently. And that's a huge problem. And I'm not saying it matters to compare them, but it sort of does because we're creating public policy around this. Yeah. 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 So consistency does matter when you're creating policy. The other side of it too that I think about Like say you are a family member of someone who did have ALS or end-stage cancer and they've been battling for a couple years. How would you feel if you know that that is the hard-fought battle that your loved one had been fighting and that that's what took their life, yet their death certificate said COVID? You know, it seems like a small thing, but it's not a small thing when a person has given all they have to fighting a disease only for it to be relabeled something else. Like maybe to other people, they might think, oh, you're being a little too picky about that. But I don't think so because I've seen people fight those diseases and it's awful. It is awful. And I just feel like it's not cheating them because it doesn't matter to them once they're gone. I don't know. It just, it, it rubs me the wrong way. It something about it does feel wrong inside of me for, for some reason. No, it does matter. And I think like you think about, you know, people who help sponsor, you know, organizations that, you know, Mm. hopefully like try to find, you know, solutions to these problems, Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know, regardless of how you feel about some of those things. But Mm -hmm. I, I do think it does take away from that. I don't know. I, I hear you, yep, Cecily. Yeah. I hadn't thought about it that way, but totally hear that. Yeah. I don't know. It just kind of has bugged me. So anyway, let's talk about – we did talk about the ICU a little bit, what it's like working in there. But I think people also need to realize that the ICU is not necessarily just full of COVID patients. You are seeing them, but you see other patients too, right? Yeah. Uh, that's another thing I talked about a lot this last year. Mm-hmm. Our ICU at, at our fullest point of – at our point where we were the most full with COVID patients, I should say, the point where we had a peak with COVID, we were probably one-fourth to one-third full of COVID patients, 40 beds, and probably like 10 to 13 of them were COVID. Sounds like a lot. But you have to remember the other two-thirds of that unit is something else, right? Right. And 
that's completely ignored. I don't know why. That's very odd to me. But there was mm-hmm. a point when uh, some nurse friends of mine that used to work at the hospital had sent me a picture that another nurse friend of mine that works on my unit um, had posted on Instagram just of uh, her standing outside of a room, you know, in garb with IV poles out there. And people and the nurse that sent it to me was like, man, that looks really scary. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, yeah, but you work there. Like you saw all this stuff all the time. And mm-hmm. – so I I never did share it because I'm like, I'll probably get in trouble for this. But I had like three different pictures, no patient identifiable information, but three different pictures of three different rooms, just like the IV pole setup and the machines and everything. And yeah, one of them was a COVID patient. One of them mm-hmm. was a patient who was uh, had a massive PE and was battling mm-hmm. for their life. Um, Mm -hmm. And another was a patient who was a drug user and needed a valve replacement. Mm -hmm. And so Mm -hmm. it was just interesting to me. I really wanted to post that, but maybe just talking Mm -hmm. it out here will be helpful for people. Right. You couldn't tell the difference. I just wanted to post that and be like, Mm -hmm. can you tell which one has COVID? Because you can't. Yeah. They all look scary, you know? And it's important to realize that the ICU is full of other people and Mm-hmm. The best way to keep yourself out of there is lifestyle choices. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think it's really important for people to remember because we see news reports and pictures and we just think, oh my goodness, that's everyone is dying of COVID, right? And that's not the case. Not to take away from the tragedy of the people that are suffering and dying from it, but just for the sanity of the public to keep to keep that in perspective. Yeah, but by okay. not, you know, by not focusing on any of those other people, it's also yeah. somewhat taking away from the tragedy exactly. of their yeah. death, you know. And for some reason that seems to have been totally minimized over mm-hmm. the past 15 months or whatever yeah. it's been. So, yeah. Okay, let's shift gears a little bit into I guess something quite controversial and that is about where the virus came from. Did it come from a lab? Did it come from a bat? Honestly, we don't know. No one no, – well, I'm sure someone knows, but we yes, don't know. Knows. But let's talk through this a little bit. All right. So I just – early on, I was questioning, like, did it come from a lab? Did it come from somewhere else? Because there were articles, pub, you know, like published news articles, I should say, um, I think mm-hmm. previous to the virus because – Nobody wanted to talk to this stuff, about this stuff after the virus, but talking about mm. um, the Wuhan labs and the United States right. funding gain-of-function testing on coronaviruses within these Wuhan labs and the fact mm. that Fauci mm. had been yeah. warned by other scientists that this is extremely dangerous and could cause right. a major outbreak. And mm. so to <laughs> me, yeah, to me when I saw that, I was just like, that makes the most sense. Like when you work in healthcare, I think we're taught to look towards the path of least resistance first, right? As like Mm -hmm. a potential option. You know, if you want to test for something, look at the most likely cause. And to me, that sounds like the most likely cause, not a bat at a wet Mm -hmm. market or whatever. Anyways, when Fauci came out immediately saying like, I don't know, like if you read exactly what he said. So I, I'm i always a person who doesn't just read the headline. I want to go to the exact quote 
see the exact video. Mm-hmm. That's the power of having video now, which <laughs> if they're real videos, you know, of what the person right. said. Um, mm-hmm. And he's just like, well, I don't know if it came from a wet market, but, you know, that we should shut that down. I think he said we should shut that down immediately. I should have went back and looked, but um, saying that that's probably where it came from. Like, I don't know, but mm-hmm. probably. Mm-hmm. And so I feel like he if you pay attention to the way these political people speak, they're always Mm -hmm. leaving room for air to get themselves out of a situation later. It's always a loophole. Yeah, so they're not like fully committing, but they're committing enough to make you think that what they're saying they believe as truth. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. he's leaving room that like, he can say later, oh, no, I never said it came from a wet market. I said I didn't know. But mm, they, mm-hmm. the way they say their words, they make you automatically think that's where it came from. That's that's the thing. And so I'm just like, he doesn't even lie well. Like, if he is a true man of science and wanting to get mm-hmm. to the root of things, he's going to look at every possible option. He's not going to automatically exactly. dismiss a lab. He's going to admit that they were funding a lab and say, you know, I don't think it mm-hmm. came from there if he doesn't think it does. But we should mm-hmm. probably look at that because we were doing gain-of-function testing there. He never yeah. once talked about it. Not once. Right. And so mm-hmm. that is a big deal. And mm-hmm. the thing that I was so mad about at the beginning with this. Like I talked about this back in June and nobody wanted to listen. Like nobody was focused on that. Everybody's like, oh, I don't really know what you're talking about right now. But to me, that was a huge deal because if you are doing gain-of-function testing on this virus, then you know more about how that virus works. It is not a mystery to you. It is not a surprise to you. And Mm -hmm. we could have done more for these people to help them. And that is Mm -hmm. criminal in my opinion. Yeah, no, I hear you. And I think, like you said, like as a person of science, you'd be remiss not to investigate all the way, right? And I just think as a population, I'm not hypothesizing, honestly. I am not about to guess where this virus came from because I don't want to lead anyone down the wrong path. But I will say, I think as a population, we would be remiss not to look at some of that evidence and also to not just think about the fact that this virus could have originated anywhere in the world. It could have mm-hmm. originated anywhere in China, but it actually originated in Wuhan on the virtually the doorstep of their virology institute where they mm-hmm. were studying coronaviruses. So I think a lot of people are labeled as crazy conspiracy, conspiracy theorists if they even entertain the notion that perhaps that's where it could have come from. But I think that's doing a huge disservice to people because it's not a crazy notion. It's not a crazy notion. I'm not saying that that's what happened, but I'm also saying it's not crazy to think that happened. Needs to be looked at. Absolutely. Yeah. And look, now, what was it, January, when they said that they were sending people over from the United States to start investigating where it came from, and then Mm -hmm. they admitted Mm -hmm. that they weren't even going to look at the lab? They're like, no, we're not even going to look at that. I'm like, what in the world? And I don't know. I was just like, this is like watching one of those Dateline murder mysteries where they, like, the cop, like, 
does a sketchy job collecting evidence and then like a year mm-hmm. later they're trying to solve it and they realize mm-hmm. like, oh, like the cop had something to do with it. That's why he did a terrible job collecting evidence. Like that's how it feels to me. Like <laughs> I don't know. It just feels yeah. very yeah. dirty. Yeah. And I feel like it's a very intentional use of transparency. Like I feel like they're just transparent enough to make a lot of people not question them. I guess the word I would be looking for is they're kind of translucent. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. They're just enough so that a lot of people aren't going to question, but they're also withholding a lot. So it's just mm-hmm. really interesting. I mean, if there was nothing to hide at all, like let's just be fully transparent. So mm-hmm. just an interesting thought. Again, we're not saying anything about anything like where it came from. I honestly have no idea. And I will say honestly too, I pray every day that this will just get over and done with, that God will just make the virus disappear. That is my prayer, that God will make the virus disappear. I will also say that (laughs) I've talked about with Rita that I'm a very optimistic person. So I hope (laughs) that the vaccines work. (laughs) Rita's like, why? I'm optimistic, you know, like there's no point. I'm optimistic, <laughs> but I'm like so realistic. The optimism is yes. not even like on my radar. It's right hard. Now. I'm optimistic, <laughs> but not about yeah. like our government being real with us mm. or um, yeah. yeah. And the virus will yeah. go away eventually, and they'll move on to another crisis for us to flounder. Well, over. that's just it. That's another thing you and I were talking about today. There's always a hot button issue of the moment that everyone is talking about, and that everyone fixates on. And that's never going to change because that's just the nature of humans. Um, And I just often imagine God watching us all being like, oh, you guys are hilarious. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, and he, he knows, he knows exactly what's going on. And he's just yeah. kind of watching us like, you know, I just think it's kind of a funny thought. But yeah. Well, anyway, that's the part I'm optimistic, I'm optimistic about. <laughs> like, I mean, God's got that's us, right. like, regardless. But that's right. I'm yeah. not optimistic about this mess ever being fixed here on Earth. <laughs> yeah. No, and, and it won't be until there's a new heaven and a new Earth. Anyway, anything else you want to add on this this all-encompassing topic? No, I think we really made people feel great about the world, and we should just leave it <laughs> Oh my goodness. Call us rays of sunshine. Sorry, I'm a little bit depressing. (laughs) Yes and no. I mean, again, depends on how you look at it. Be optimistic. Am I right? Yeah. (laughs) All right. Thanks for listening, you guys. If you want to find us outside of the podcast, you can find me, Cecily, on Instagram at cecily.dicky or on my blog at thegracetogrow.com. And you can find me, Rita, at RitaRogersCo.com or RitaRogersCo on Instagram. Thanks for listening.